John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 726.mt0908, certificate number 39341, Liztomania. Listomania, except I'm talking about Franz List, not... Not Tomain poisoning. <laughs> right, or listomania, which it seems like everybody I know, every girl I've ever dated is like, just make a list. Look at all my lists. Listomania is when you like buy a copy of the Book of Lists and Book of Lists 2 in, in 1978 and put them in your bathroom. Well, put them, then make a list of all the books of lists you have. But we're talking <laughs> about list. List. Is that the Hungarian way we're going to say it? No, I think in Hungary it's like... List. List. I actually don't Licht. know. No, that would be the German way. Uh, yeah, in I've been in Budapest, and everything is still named after Liszt. Sorry, this Budapest, day. Ken. Liszt. Everything <laughs> is in Budapest is still named after Liszt. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the big square is like because yeah. there, you know, you put the surname first, right? And Franz is the Germanized version of his name. He was born in the somewhere in the Hungarian part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1811, and so in Hungarian, his first name is spelled like F E R E N C. Ferengi? Which I assume is, yeah, Ferengi, because <laughs> he knew all the rules of acquisition. I assume it's Ferenc or something like that. Mm -hmm. Again, if Hungarian survives to the 30th century, please let us know if we're getting any of this wrong. Hungarian will become the lingua franca. Everyone speaks Hungarian now. They think it's weird that we used to put our first names mm -hmm. first. The lingua migar. And not put pa paprika in everything. I gotta say, I don't like paprika. No, you gotta be kidding, really? No. Don't you like goulash? I love goulash. I just wish it tasted a little less like paprika, which I guess means I want... What do you want? Stro stew. Stroganoff. You yes. want beef stew. I want stew, basically. <laughs> what if you Stew just, with no vegetables. What if you just didn't put in paprika and we called it stewlash? Have you ever... Just before we started, you and I were talking about live theater, live performance, concerts. Yeah, we love to talk all, about that all stuff. All the stuff that we're missing out. Mm -hmm. I was saying, I was recommending you watch the the Spike Lee concert film of the David Byrne show. Mm -hmm. What's the closest you've been to some kind of live event like that that just had the kind of communal fervor, like some kind of transcendental thing that the performers couldn't explain, the audience couldn't explain? Have you ever been at one of these shared things, either on the stage or in the 
in the crowd? Yeah, absolutely. There was a band called Crash Worship back in the early '90s that had uh, that had shows that were uh, just insane, um, and you know that was a type of rock show where they would throw fireworks out into the crowd. They uh, they would pour. Uh, cooking oil on on the whole crowd at one point and throw a match at one point at one of the shows um a naked woman on a tray that was covered with fruit was was carried uh crowd surfing style over the crowd and do every- you feel like the band provided her or was she just uh, uh it's un- did she just bring her own tray byot <laughs> it's unclear but we were you know eating uh stuff off of the tray as she went you know and kind of passing her along were you all covered in wesson at this point we were all covered in oil because it's easier to mosh for sure there was a ton of smoke in the venue so you, i mean it was like not just fog but smoke and everybody was completely soaked in oil and uh, it became a kind of gender fluid bacchanalia. It was, and I went to more than one of these. I would. They were they were tremendous experiences, and ones that you cannot describe uh, to accurately reflect the uh, the powerful experience of just being in a space where you're like, well, my body, I guess, is just connected to these other thousand bodies, and it, we're just like going. For, and their music was very tribal. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you you left out the performance almost entirely. Well, because it was a gr- it, was it wasn't a, sh- a quality of the it was a shared performance, but it was very, you know their music was very loud. They were very uh, uh, they were involved in the kind of that uh, they were creating that energy, and it was extremely tribal music, and it was tribal in the sense of industrial tribal. There was a lot of banging on broken stuff, and oh, yeah, and uh, like, I went to stomp. Yeah, it was sort of like stomp. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Nobody's <laughs> dipping girls in Wesson at, at at stomp. And there was fire. You know, there was a lot of there was there there was a lot of fire. This was before. It sounds like you escaped certain death. Yeah. by going to multiple of the, these. Shows. This was before that that event uh, back east where the, the venue caught on fire. Right. Um, no, this was you know there was stuff burning and there. I think at some point maybe someone was using a. Uh, a circular saw to cut into a 50 gallon drum and the sparks and the sound was miked. You know, it was this, it was this kind of thing. It was was happening. And there was another time the band, the cows, Mm -hmm. uh, created a situation. Oh, well, Jesus lizard used to do this all the time. Jesus lizard shows were like, uh, uh, just transcendental, but I'm talking about me now less than, or more than, um, then I guess maybe I, I think you could probably go to a Jesus Lizard show and not feel like you were yeah, being transported. Like when you're describing the uh, the crash uh, worship worship show, I was thinking I don't know if I would be having that same connection. Part of it is you cannot stand at the back of the venue with your arms crossed at this kind of show. You know, in every one of these, I was. I I tap my foot a little too. (laughs) Don't. uh, But I was right down in the mix, you know, like really like part of the, part, part of the whole, um, it's not a thing you would do now because we were all like, uh, you know, like blowing our noses on each other. It was. I guess I was trying to picture an example where it's actual, because I don't think I've had a great one of these at a rock show where it's somehow a connection between the artist and the crowd, like everyone is simultaneously somehow experiencing whatever they're trying to put over. And it, it there's a 
connection that's n- not possible through recorded music or or not in a group space maybe in, in all three of those that i mentioned the cows and and uh, david yao of jesus lizard and crash worship there was a palpable menace right there's a there were they were dangerous danger and um and the and so the connection was you kind of uh, almost felt safe as long as you went along with the fact that you could be I mean, David Yao seemed like he could kill you at any moment, not on, not on purpose, just by exploding. I guess I was imagining like a rave-like euphoria. Oh. N- less than uh, <laughs> well, sure. less than the Thunderdome you're describing. <laughs> the, those all had a rave-like euphoria. It was just uh, very dark. But of course, I've been to plenty of raves where you lose your mind and you're just dancing and also kind of, I don't know, covered in yeah. bubbles or something. But- but uh, but the ones that really stick in my mind are these ones that were also uh, that had that element of um, that they were truly out of control. A rave never feels out of control. You feel maybe personally like, "Woo, I'm losing it," but but it doesn't feel like this venue is about to go over a waterfall. I was trying to think of some live event I was at that had some kind of just Beatlemania-like sense of just transcendental, inexplicable losing it mm-hmm. and i don't know if i have one in when it comes to music like i feel like i've had that in theater live theater mm-hmm. and i've had it in sports for sure because you're a sports the, fan I'm, I'm a pretty mild sports fan but all my, but my stories of just a whole crowd having the same emotion at once and just loving being oh, there with yeah. each other are are uh you know that russell wilson fourth down touchdown in sure. the in the 2014 NFC Championship game, or I saw Griffey hit a walk-off home run, and the whole place, the the entire kingdom, just yeah, the, went insane. Twenty tiles fell off the roof, <laughs> killing seventeen <laughs> people were killed, and no one cared. Because <laughs> uh, that, I guess, that's the kind of. I mean, mm-hmm. when I when I look at a video of of people experiencing Beatlemania, it just seems like such a simple. It's tribal, yeah, but it's it's youthful and it's it, it, it's, it's sexual but joyful too. That's the thing. It it only works in a room, you know. Like I've watched, I've watched big turnovers and fourth down conversions at home, and it is just not the same without drunk strangers to high five. Well, or unless you have twenty people watching the Super Bowl together, and then you it can. You can get it briefly, a lot of screaming. Yeah, you get some microcosm on it. You know, the long winners never inspired that kind of devotion because that wasn't the – we weren't about creating an entire atmosphere. You know, there are bands that are really good at – And it could even be a stripped-down kind of acoustic connection. For sure. Like it's not genre-related. But it's it's, – I think it has to do with the band, the music, the look of the band – the iconography of the band, if if the band has a totality, you know, the long winners always had, you know, the band looked like they would make one kind of music, and then the music we made was different, and then we also were interrupting songs and telling jokes, and, you know, there was, right. there was never that feeling that built and built and built and built until... Um, until the the crowd really got to someplace, like the Beatles didn't stop on the Ed Sullivan show and and tell jokes for five minutes. You know, they 
<laughs> well, like... Nobody would hear them. I'm sure John Lennon was doing his offensive, uh, offensive uh, disabled person face. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, but nobody could hear whatever he was doing. I'm sitting here trying to think, you know, this was a big part of my life, the uh, attempting to find or create this thing that you're talking Nirvana. about. This place where, and I've, you know, I've been to a lot of shows that had a, a version of it. Yeah. Um, the Melvins used to be really good at creating that vibe in a room. Have you ever seen it in a different, have you ever seen, like, have you seen enough live theater to have a moment like that? I've definitely had live theater, like alternative theater experiences where I felt transformed. Yeah. I guess you're not sure if the room does. Yeah. Who knows? Like, uh, like I walked out and was just like, had to talk to the actor. Like I'm so moved by what just happened. And you know, like I need to, I need to talk to you. I need to know that I need to know more theater. It really impresses me what happens in theater because you've got that whole thing where, you know, a curtain comes up and somebody walks on the stage pretending to have a phone call. Like, well, as I told the mother and you're like, Oh, I'm here for two hours of this. Yeah. You know? And then somehow they do the magic trick where you're in it and it's real. And then it's better. It's more intense than real. I, I went to a lot of like one person shows where the, the writer and actor are the same and she steps to the front of the room and she's talking over your heads to some imaginary parent or some drug dealer or whatever. And you're just, you're obviously not, she's not pretending to be on the phone. She's talking kind of to a ghost or to her imagination. And, uh, God, I saw one of those where she, uh, actress was talking to the room and, and, and then she started to move backward on the stage and the lights changed and there was a bed, uh, like bolted to the wall behind her at the end, at the, at the back of the stage. And she was moving slowly, like kind of all slow motion, moving her arms and about halfway across the stage, you realize that she was falling <laughs> and the bed was in spot below her and she fell in slow motion onto the bed and i you can st- i can still picture it you know i still get goosebumps as i was watching and i was just like where am i i'm in a whole other there's something about it thing. being there that a, a movie can't duplicate no no no, no despite the fact that the movie has a hundred times more tools and this was a special effect yeah in a in basically a black box performance there were she had no other props but it was just it. this one thing uh but just the 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 whole idea of it I was like well I've just seen the end like what else is there now I asked Mindy this last night cuz she's seen she loves live theater and she's seen a lot of shows and we both kind of agreed that it was a show we'd both happened to see um separately Yeah we saw it separately we but we had both seen Miz. Ju- Judith yeah actually Mindy <laughs> said I saw Les Mis when I was 11 and that was it for me really? like I yeah like really? she, she's just weeping for three and a half hours, I guess. Uh, you know, some touring company of Les Mis. But no, I, uh, we had both seen Judith Light do Wit on Broadway, which is a one-woman show about a, a woman facing cancer. You know, and Judith Light did it in a hospital robe with her head shaved bald. And it's just her talking for 90 minutes. It's just that kind of thing where you feel like she's talking to you. Like the whole, uh-huh. like you can tell the whole room is just hanging on every word the same way. You are so it is communal, even though it's, even though nobody's interacting or moshing. You know, it was it was frowned on to mosh it at wit. The, this happened to me once in a, in the movies, um, the opening scene of the Truman Show. I 
I got it. Like he's sitting, shaving in the mirror and talking to himself and has his little. He draws this shaving cream thing yeah. on the mirror. And I understood it totally. And in the first three minutes of the movie, it broke me. And I wept through the entire film. I never stopped crying through the whole movie. And by the end of it, I was like, I don't know what just happened to me. And the lights came up and the people that I was watching that I'd gone to, and I'm, you know, I'm a quiet weeper. Uh, That's what people say about you. It's in your Twitter bio, weirdly. <laughs> and they uh, they were both, like, the lights come up and they both kind of turned to me and they were like, well, that wasn't as good as I expected. <gasps> and I was like, I have to go. And also, I don't like you anymore. Best movie of the 90s, maybe. The Truman Show? Yeah. Oh, you agree. I love that movie. Oh, Oh, it. I mean, it absolutely devastated me, and I've never watched it again because oh, I don't good. want to know. I don't want to know whether that was real or whether it was just where I was that day. I, I think that's smart. I mean, it got it. I swear to you, opening credits, and I was just like, I'm broken. And that movie sticks the landing too. Ugh. He leaves, and then he's gone. There's no more movie because the show is over. Yeah, I, he I got just out. Cried and cried and cried, and the lights came up, and I was like. <laughs> I kind of want to come back to what makes that kind of performance, but like through the lens of our of our Hungarian hero today, the, this idea that a performance can cause that kind of just hysteria, this emotional fervor and furor in a room, Beatlemania style or uh, or across emotions, uh, Beatlemania in that it has the hero worship and the sexuality. Uh-huh. Um, but in the world of romantic classical performance, uh, Star Story takes place in the 1840s. Um, Franz Liszt, the great romantic composer, was a child prodigy growing up in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I think H- he's, handsome. He was a handsome. Okay, that's the thing we're going to have to talk about first. Okay, good-looking guy. Yeah, uh, not incidental to the story. You look at most of the surviving photographs of him. He's old, and his face is. 60% warts and moles. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's got long white hair and seem, seems very much like... <laughs> but it's funny that he kept the flowing white performer hair into his old age, and he still got the commanding brow, chin, and nose. And if you look at lithographs, and there's some photographs of him when he's younger, he's clearly a very good-looking man in kind of the strong, oversized features way of... Um, he has an extraordinary nose. It's a great aquiline nose, a firm brow, uh, you know, a, 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 a soap actor's chin. Uh-huh. And cheekbones, I mean, it's, he's kind of got the, um, it's not totally Abraham Lincoln, but he's got the big features of a 19th century frontiersman almost, you know, larger than life. Yeah, he does seem almost like a Presbyterian uh, yes. minister who's hacking a church out of the wilderness. Like you could see him in the crucible, like burning witches at the stake or something. But he also is Byronic, right? He's got a... He's got the flowing he's kind romantic. of curly hair. Yeah. Um, as a child, he was a he was kind of a dazzling prodigy. His dad was a, some kind of court musician slash composer to uh, to uh, nobility, and it's funny, you know, you read accounts of his child prodigy, and you know, he started taking piano lessons at seven and did rudimentary compositions at eight. Oh, and I'm like, buddy, that's not a child prodigy. That's every American child in a in a recorder class, you know, like we all <laughs> rudimentary we all, compositions. We all took piano lessons at seven and did rudimentary compositions <laughs> at eight. But I guess by 12, he was such a dazzling performer that people didn't think he was performing. Like people would say, you know, the crowd would yell trickery when they saw this kid doing what he was doing on the keyboard. Oh, fancy. And, and he would have to start performing with his back to the audience so that they could actually see that there was no fakery going on. Wait a minute. With how, does, how does that work? 
what you can see if if the oh oh the piano is turned yeah, I sorry, see the pi- the, yeah, the I see the the pianist is facing away from the crowd so they can see he can they can see his hands the piano is not blocking the movement of his hands um so he has a dazzling future ahead of him trickery he's he's the flavor of the month mm-hmm. people are so he, you know basically he's technically he's already so good that people can't believe it then his dad dies Uh-oh. um he ends up living in in obscurity in Paris as a young man, trying to support his mom just by it's it's almost like a sad twentieth century jazz prodigy story. He's giving lessons to kids. Does he become a junkie? Uh, even worse, he considers joining the clergy. Oh dear. He uh, he's decided that you know he's kind of burned out on fame at nineteen or whatever, and now it's time to take orders and. But he's not making a, a ton of money. Is that a, is that a, he doesn't he doesn't have a royal patron? No. Uh, which is what it took back then. Yeah, um, right. You know, you couldn't just rise to musical success by being dazzling. You needed to have, you know, Bach was a Kapellmeister. He had a good solid church job. And even, you know, even the even Mozart had to have, uh, you know, an empress or an emperor to keep him in wigs. And sure, that's, that's a big part of that, that other movie that made me weep from the beginning <laughs> to the end. But I really saw myself as a Salieri. It wasn't really until Beethoven that you had the idea of a composer who's so good that he can he Make can just living. do it, take it to the people. So List is, you know, List is of that era, but he's still sadly giving lessons. And then one night in 1832, he goes to see Paganini. I just realized it'd be funny if he went to a doctor and the doctor's like, <laughs> the great clown Paganini is in t- the great violinist Paganini is in town. <laughs> And List says, but doctor, no, he's essentially given up on music. And then he goes to see the great violinist, Paganini. And he has this kind of fervid uh, epiphany experience that we're talking about here. The Holy Ghost descends. Oh, oh, it's he who has the experience. First. I see, yeah. I see. And, you know, it's it's what people maybe said about him as a kid and would say about him later that they just can't, he can't believe what the guy's doing. And I, I didn't know this, but Paganini, I guess was like, I think maybe serious music critics hated him because he was the showy guy. Oh, the Liberace. Yeah. He's Victor Borga. Like he's, yeah, he's doing oh. all the, you know, he would, um, he invented new techniques. So he'd be doing pizzicato and arco at once and doing guitar style Playing stuff. Playing behind and, his back. I and... mean, he's not Jack Ben, you know, he's not like doing goofy stuff. He's not a comedy act, but, He's intentionally doing very showy, flowery, over-the-top things that a purist would disagree with on the violin. Right. And the crowds eat it up. Women eat it up. He's selling out concert halls. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's bad performance. Like, apparently he was not a great violinist when he got away from his show pieces. Oh, interesting. So he wasn't a Jimi Hendrix who was like... Just a... Yeah. Just a... Could a, do anything. D- can do anything. And so is also playing with his teeth. Yeah, maybe fun, uh, his fundament, maybe his his violin teacher hated all this. Well, but. I mean, they say about Liberace that he was a fine pianist, but not a, not like a great one. That seems right. I don't know. Like if you told me that actually is Elton John a great pianist? The um, yeah, is Billy I, Joel? I think not, sir. Billy Joel is the best pianist on Long Island <laughs> right now. And so anyway, this rekindles his love of music, seeing this guy just do things you can't believe are possible on the violin. And I realize that's a kind of stage show I've been at, too. Um, you know, you see Cirque du Soleil or something. How can they do this? Yeah. Or, yeah. or Penn and Teller, even. Like, you see it as you know, really well done stage magic. The whole audience just has this collective gasp of, I can't believe this is real. 
Right. I went to the, I had dinner at the Magic Castle one time and went to some shows there. And uh, in every case, I believed it was real. (laughs) (laughs) That should be your Apple review for the Magic Castle. (laughs) You will believe your eyes. (laughs) So that returns list to this idea that he should be a... Uh, a professional musician. It turns him away from the church. Okay. Now, have you ever had an experience as a performer where you watched a performance and said, oh, now I get what it means to be a performer and I'm going to incorporate what I just learned? The problem is I'm not really a performer, you know? Like I've been in that kind of zone. One million Jeopardy fans would agree. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone who has ever heard a Jeopardy anecdote (laughs) given by or to me. (laughs) No, I um I mean honestly, yeah, if you're talking about that arena, you watching Alex Trebek host as a kid, I thought this guy's not glib like Pat Sajak. Sure, anybody it, could do this. Yeah, like this is a bit of a, you know, he's kind of a Canadian drag. And then actually under first of all, he got better by the time I started seeing him up close and then just realizing how hard the job was he was doing. Yeah. It almost was like, when you got to the level you could understand it, it was like watching a figure skater hit a triple axel when he'd come out and, you know, have he'd have to just off the cuff hit three different points and then segue flawlessly into the game and then read 61 clues in that kind of graceful baritone. and Never make a mistake. Never make a mistake and keep the pace of the game up and follow everything at once. But that was more like watching an athlete, I think. You know, I as a performer, I see I've seen people give just great kind of TED Talk style things, which is a thing I do. Yeah. I saw Brian Stevenson, the Center for Race the, the Justice Equality, you know, the the death row guy, Michael Michael G. B. Jordan played him in the movie. He's like a criminal justice reform advocate guy. Yeah. And he is just an amazing speaker. And I'm sure he has given the speech I saw to weeping white liberals. A hundred times, and they all opened their wallets just like I wanted to. <laughs> but it was so good. And I just thought, uh, I wish I could do that when I do it. Like, what, what could I do that would be more like that? Well, see, that's the thing. I think in order to appreciate seeing a great performer, you have to already be yes. in the game and know what the stakes are and know. Because you can watch somebody and be like, oh, that was, you know. Wow, that was impressive. But you don't know the degree of difficulty. Yeah, and then because there have been there have been a few musicians that I've seen or or performers like people giving talks or comedy, you know, all the stuff that I try and do hosts. And there've been there've been only a few where I said, "Well, Jesus, that's a that's a maybe I shouldn't say Jesus, that's a no, it's swear like, word. It's a religious experience when you yeah. see one of these. Jesus, you said to my, to, to him. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, like that's, uh, that is something I can't do. Right. You see so many performers where you're like, well, yeah, I mean, I do a thing like that, but to see somebody that makes you want to quit. Oh, wow. (laughs) Or, or steal everything. (laughs) Right. To just be like, oh, now, now I'm going to, I'm going to reevaluate my whole idea. So let's reevaluates his whole idea. It it, maybe because he is not in the business at the time. What it makes him want to do is Get back in. Have that life. You Get know? back in the game. He becomes a touring musician. And um, by the 1840s, there's a period where he performs 1,000 piano recitals in eight years. Mm-hmm. So 120 dates a year, mm-hmm. roughly. That's... Like, that's a punishing, or I mean, it's an ambitious 
touring schedule. Yeah, it's about it's it's half of what Dave Bazan does, but yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's a lot of it's two or three shows a week, right? Yeah, it's a lot of uh, touring. Uh, and I don't, you know, could you do that for eight years running? I mean, I've played 180 shows in a year, but, but stacked up, you know, like, like six months on six months off, not, not, it's not three shows a week, but no, eight years. No. I mean, when you hear about these people who have their residencies, you know, you know, Springsteen or Celine Dion, you know, they're, they're probably doing about the same show. Yeah. I had a friend that went to Springsteen show live and he was like, yeah, word for word. It's what you can see him do on, on HBO max or wherever that is. He tells the same stories with the same pauses and, and chuckles every night. And sometimes he swaps out an encore and if Patty's not there, he'll do a different song, you know, but I think like bands like Iron Maiden who had one kind of hit metal record after another where every one was a hit record, but in metal. So they weren't trying to get to the top of the charts. Yeah. I think they left on tour in 1980 and they didn't stop <laughs> touring until, uh, you know, until somebody in the band left. And but, Dylan did that for decades yeah, too. Right, and, right. and he could just, I think he would just play anything in his catalog. He Willie just, Nelson. Willie yeah, Nelson. exactly. Yeah. Um, and list was sort of like that. Like in one residency, he play, he rotated through 80 different works, 50 of them, 50 of which he could play from memory. Wow. Um, so there's the child prodigy. He's also a composer. He's playing his own stuff and other people's works. Covers. Yeah. I mean, he does covers uh-huh. like he'll do. The night they drove old Dixie down. He'll do Beethoven. And, uh, yeah, at the end, Beethoven and Meyerbeer and everybody come out and Chopin, they all, they all do my back pages together. <laughs> No. Uh, and immediately it's clear that three things are happening. One, his compositions are incredibly imaginative. You know, he is as good a composer as there is. Number two, his technique is just dazzling. It's huh. everything he loved about Pagani. Like to this day, there's debate about whether he was the greatest pianist ever. I don't know if that's a field that has incremental advancement the way gymnastics does. The greatest Pianist or the greatest performer? Uh, I think both. Huh. Because that's, I'm about to get into, this is just straight up technical proficiency. Okay. He is a virtuoso like no one has ever seen, and people can tell. And partly they can tell because he's selling it. The third thing is he has this hypnotic effect on the audience. He seems to be in a kind of rapture. He is swaying mm. on the bench in a way people have never, you know, you can kind of imagine like Nora Jones doing it or something. This guy's doing it in 1840. Okay. And people are, um, I've never seen anything like it. He appears to be having kind of a out of body religious experience. Yeah. He's got this, he's a beautiful man. He's got this hair he can toss back and he knows it. Oh, so he's the prototype of the, of the flamboyant conductor or the. Sure. Stokowski yeah. or you know, up to Freddie Mercury sure, or, sure. Uh, you know, one of these kind of front men. Oh, well, I think of it in terms of classical music, the long-haired uh, first violin that's, that yeah. is super flamboyant. It's like or, with the long hair yeah. and, uh, and. But then, yeah, sure. Of course, proto, prototype rock proto, and roll. Proto glam rocker, I guess. And, you know, we should say, you know, there has been a movie made of, a movie made called Listomania, which kind of takes advantage of this idea that he was the original rock and roller. It's a Ken Russell movie. Oh, I didn't know It's that. over the top. There's enormous penises. Ringo Starr plays oh, the Pope. Dear goodness. It's um, it's just it's just a bizarre kind of a, a fever dream, Ken Russell movie. But it's based on the historical fact that people went nuts for a romantic 
composer and pianist in a way that you would not imagine happening before Hamburg and Liverpool in the in the early sixties, or or you know at least Frank Sinatra. Sinatra yeah. yeah, so I guess Sinatra is the prototypical. You know, he sings one note, and women just are in puddles. Yeah. Hello, Tushy. Hello, Tushy. Tushy, Tushy, Tushy. Hello. Is that Partridge Family? <laughs> Hello, Tushy, my old friend. How about a sad version, like oh. a like a minor key acoustic guitar? Hello, Tushy. <laughs> Is it my Tushy you're looking for? Uh, hello, Tushy. Hello, Tushy. What's the, is the bidet saying hello to your Tushy? Is that the, is that what's going on here? Who is speaking in the sentence, hello, Tushy? The void. <laughs> the void. The void is speaking. Hello, Tushy. I. Hello, Tushy. I would like to recommend a better way to use the toilet. Tushy. It's, it's Tushy. It's the voice of God. Over here. Tushy. Hello. Uh, hello, Tushy provides a better and more hygienic way to use the toilet yes uh a famously uh uh, unhygienic place i mean we're still using a descendant of what our caveman ancestors would do with the leaves and a hole in the ground Hmm. and we're living in the 21st century yeah there should be a space age way to we're living in an age of wonders space space age equivalent of Leaves in a hole in the ground. And what is it, Ken? It's the Hello Tushy 3.0 Modern Bidet Attachment. Okay. It cleanses very it cleanses you with a precise stream of fresh water. Again, not something available to our hunter-gatherer ancestors unless they sat on the geyser just right. Right. And it's not an imprecise uh, geyser. It's not like you're sitting... It's not like somebody with a fire hose. It's not like you're... It's not a blunt instrument, as it were. Right. This is precision stuff. You're not not putting your tushy in a raging torrent. No, it's eco-friendly because you're going to use less toilet paper. It's easy to install um, because it doesn't require any electricity or additional plumbing. Uh, And it's affordable. Yeah, well, that levels the playing field. You don't want only some people to have... You don't want the billionaires to have clean butts and everybody else, you know, the 99.999% of humanity to have unclean butts. Yeah, we should start calling billionaires clean butts. Hey, what's up, clean butt? I bet your butt's really clean. Boy, that'd really get them. No, but then it would be democratized by Hello Tushy 3.0, which is... You could stand up and say, I too am a clean butt. I too am a clean butt. Clean butts for the masses. We're all clean butts. Uh, It's sanitary. You... You spray, you dry, and you go. No, no, no poking around with little pieces of paper. Oh dear. Go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus to get 10% off plus free shipping of this incredible modern apparatus. Potty apparatus. Yeah. Incredible modern uh, hygienic system. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com slash omnibus to get 10% off. This is around the same time that the word celebrity enters the English language. Oh, celebrity wasn't a word in, in English until the 1830s, meaning uh, meaning what we mean today. Uh, yeah. And if you think about it, you can see why, you know, there that didn't exist as a category. Uh, a, you know, back then, a person that everybody knew would be the king. You know, the, the word for that would be royalty. Yeah, there wasn't yet a, a, a post that would have delivered news of the day. In the same way. And the idea that people, you know, the thing we have today where people actually care about the performer as a person, they have a sense of who they're dating or who their friends are or what they think about an issue of the day or what they said in the paper. 
this was all just starting. By- Byron is often cited as the first oh, cra- okay. in the 1820s. Right. I would have thought it happened later, but sure, Byron would have been the one, right, that everybody swooned over. But List is kind of, on the continent, List is kind of the prototype for this because he does have a dazzling set of friends. He's friends with pretty much all the big names, Chopin, uh, both Schumanns, Hector Berlioz, Wagner. He's hanging out with writers as well, Victor Hugo and Heinrich Heine, and and women. You know, he's he's has a long term relation affair with a married count, a German countess named Marie Dagoul, uh, and has three children with her. See, that's always been my ambition, but I just don't have the a married German countess. Yeah. There's so there's so many fewer than there used to be. I know. Think of, yeah, just think about ugh, all the all the balls. She was, uh, and she wasn't just a pretty face. I guess she's. If you look up this woman that he spent decades kind of off and on with, despite her name? frequent affairs, Marie Dagoul. She's like a romantic novelist, her poet and novelist herself, and a respect. She wrote respected historical fiction and nonfiction. Like she was a historian under the name Daniel Stern. Really. Uh, I I loved her in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, if you were going to pick one of the Wet Bandits as a pseudonym, <laughs> would you go with Joe Pesci or would you go with Daniel Stern? Um, I guess if you're Italian. I mean, this is precisely the kind of uh, Germanic countess I hope to have a long-standing <laughs> affair with. One who wrote under a pseudonym. So it's almost she like she also has Princess Leia braids. Oh, is that right? Yeah, well, that's what you want in, in your German countess. Yeah, for for shiz. A, a kind of a Brunhilde quality, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, women are aware of his his history and his charms, and that just plays into it. There is literally screaming and cheering and swooning mm-hmm. every time he performs. There are um, comic satirical engravings of you know just women just fainting and and women in the front row looking at him with binoculars because they're they're so obsessive. Um, accounts of baronesses tearing at each other's hair to get a a discarded glove or a a hanky he set down or a glass he's just drunken out of at a party. I can see how Punch would uh, think this was hilarious and worthy of satire. Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny because, this is getting a little off subject, but it's, it's really an embrace of female, what, horny women at a time when this was this was the bodice ripper era because there were bodices. I mean, people were probably comfortable with jokes about men, uh, you know, uh, obsessed with magnetic women, but a room full of women just um, that had the to- leisure to all attend a thing like yeah. this. First of all, yeah, yeah, and then you know we're we're okay with admitting that they have their own needs as well. Mm. You know, this is kind of a needs. It's kind of a surprising, given the the kind of button down role of women and pedestalized. Now you've got wives me and moms. They would have been at the looking time. up all like countesses from the nineteenth century and hottest countesses eighteen forty. I'm really in love with Countess Dash Gabrielle Anne Cisterne de Cort Cortiras Viscomtess Vis Viscom not Vis Vicomtesse de Saint Mars. I feel it's like. because you can't have her, John. She's yeah. a, if she, even if she's alive, she's 210 years old. She also has a phenomenal nose. You know, a big nose is something, not big, a, a nose of distinction is, is, is a, that's a signpost for me. It's funny that all these things you would have thought of as like kind of a decadent 70s roadie behavior 
was happening in 1840s Vienna and Paris. Oh, really? People were wearing his, women would wear his little portraits on their brooches. If he, um, if he broke a piano string, what? they would try to grab it and use it as a, as a bracelet. Broke a piano string? That's how good he is, man. <laughs> I've never heard of that. But it's the equivalent of, uh, of you know, trying to catch a guitar pick or a, a capo or whatever, right? Sure, I'm just fascinated by what he's doing to break piano strings. I, th- I think I've heard of forceful enough forceful keyboardists. Hmm. Forceful keyboardist. <laughs> Is that the a forceful keyboardist by <laughs> Philip Roth. I mean, I wonder if it's also piano manufacturing design being a little different back then. I mean, I've played some pianos pretty pretty ruthlessly. I've never broken a string or seen anyone do it, but maybe I'm just not as experienced as I as I need be. My favorite story is about him leaving a uh, a woman seeing him leave a half smoked cigar on an ashtray or something and just running after it. And um, you know, she's a, a woman of quality and nobility, and she is just sucking down this cigar, obviously just nauseated and uh, coughing out smoke and just, but in feigned ecstasy at this, at this new connection she has to the, this wunderkind sex God. Um, when he leaves Berlin after a well-received residency in 1841, there's a, he's in a team of six white horses and a procession of coaches behind him in the street is just lined with crowds like the beginning of hard day's night, basically. Uh, he is not the, the papers say um, leaving not leaving not like a king but as king. Whoa, basically. Whoa, I mean he's he's as big a name as you can get. So is this Sorry, also Kaiser. is this also generating for him enormous wealth? Yes, uh, he is doing incredibly well for himself. Um, but you know the decadence of the six white horses is the style he's become accustomed to. Sure. Um, he, and you see it in the stage shows in, in Russia before the before the crowned heads of Russia. He actually has two pianos facing opposite sides of the hall, and he switches between them so that everybody gets oh. a chance. So you know it's it's an Elton John show. Yeah, basically that's pretty dramatic. Um, in Australia, his pa- in, in Australia when he goes to Austria, his passport just says "Celebritate Suicat Notice" as his um, as his profession. You know, of famous for his own note. And his occupation says musician, philosopher. And when, and when he has to write in what his journey is, he writes in transit from doubt to truth. Oh. So yeah, he's a, sure. he, he's he a rock star. He writes his own bios. <laughs> he's writing his own album notes at this point. And his friend Heinrich Heine, the, the greatest German lyric poet of the time, whose leader are being adapted by, by this whole circle of musicians, coins the name. Let me see if I can find the actual essay he wrote coins the word listomania to describe these years of audience fervor. And how long does this last? How, how many years is he on top of the charts? Well, you know, he's, he's touring at the top of his game. You know, he's the best pianist in the world for decades and he's, you know, the most successful touring artist. You know, he's the, he's the, the you two are the Ed Sheeran of at least a decade. Um, but you know, the next time he comes to Berlin, there's much less of this furor. You know, there's less of the of the swooning, which makes me think that, like Beatlemania, you know, the people stayed fans, but they outgrew the screaming. What, I guess what happened in music between 1840 and 1850, where the new the new music would have been would have felt to the teens like. A, like something that had progressed. I don't think he went out of style, you know? Like, this is the height of the romantic period. Yeah. Um, and he's doing other people's... So as a live performer, 
you know, he can, he can play the hits, you know, if, right. if Beethoven's got an, uh, you know, uh, I guess probably not Beethoven, the dates are wrong. If, if, um, if Schumann or Sanson has some amazing new piece and it really can show off his virtuosity, he's going to add it. And, but you know, he might, he's not a purist. He might add his own little flowery runs. And, oh, well done. And cadenzas. Is that, am I saying that right? Or credenzas? Cred, yeah, it's credenzas. Isn't that credenza a buffet? It is. He's adding his own buffets to uh-huh. the, to the music. Crescendos. And, and the the composers and and the critics notice and the composers might oh object might, might object but you know they really can't because because he's just so good he does a, a technique I think called third hand playing where you you actually can it sounds like the composer is playing with a third hand uh-huh. and you can somehow do it by keeping some kind of um you're doing some kind of melody in the middle register with both hands as the left and right hands are also still doing their thing. So it requires amazing dexterity, but you just sound like you're doing something impossible. Uh, he does a he does a Beethoven show and adds um, a Meyer beer composition called Robert the Devil for an encore. And he says he doesn't want to do it, but you know the crowd was screaming for the hits, and he had to come back out and do Robert the Devil. Sure, just like a modern performer. And then the the papers joke that someday he will be called to to he will rise to heaven and will perform for the angels. And they too will want to hear Robert the Devil, and he'll he'll have to do it for the heavenly for the heavenly throng. Did he play the battle hymn of the Republic? Did he <laughs> did he do like all the hits? I mean, he really is essentially doing kind of timeless sellout. Mater- I mean, I guess back then, when you play Beethoven, it doesn't seem like you're doing. She'll be coming around the mountain, right? Like that's the equivalent of doing, um, you know, some Dylan Evergreen piece or. I don't know what's a good example of this. It's just like doing like a Rolling Stone or something. Yeah, right. Then let it be. Or, or even, I mean, at this point, more recently, at this point, it's going to be like doing uh, uh, where the streets have no name or <laughs> yeah, shake it off or yeah, go up as far as you want. Well, it, it feels like this is all happening just before the like popularization of the piano, right? Like the piano is was new in 1700. It's not going to be in it's not going to be in your parlor. Yeah, it's it, 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 it a rich woman's a middle class salon, thing maybe. A, a, a middle class access to a piano was mid 19th century or or uh or a little later and so so this would have been a time when this would have this kind of event would have been one of your only opportunities to hear this music, right? You wouldn't be you wouldn't necessarily be sitting down and playing this at home. Right. I mean, you, you don't have another way to hear music, basically. You have to go to a hall. Um, I'm looking through the original Heine essay. He, I mean, he blames the crowd, basically. He says, there's, this is a, we're a button-down Prussian society, and this is the only chance that you know, women have to cut loose. I shrugged my shoulders pityingly and said to myself, our Germany of Sabbath-like stillness Placid in its calm repose, will not miss the opportunity to take a little lawful exercise. Oh, so this is the, it's, uh, it's this, the Victorians are repressed theory, kind of right? Or the um, it's the footloose argument, <laughs> right? That's true. <laughs> you know, I uh, I've been trying to build a little art collection for myself um, because you know not only is art a wonderful thing to have around the house um, as a decorative element, but it's also it can end up being a great investment. And for somebody like myself, the only option traditionally has been that I meet young artists at street fairs 
and uh, at local art schools, and I buy their paintings really cheap when they're young, and then hope against hope that they became that they become a new Basquiat, and then all of a sudden I'm one of those people that bought like a Monet when he was a struggling artist. That hasn't worked for me so far. My art collection really right now is mostly old Mad magazines in picture frames, but there's a new uh, there's a new concept in uh in art ownership where like blue chip art is being offered like fractional ownership is being offered by a company called masterworks where you can invest in an actual picasso or a banksy or a basquiat at a price point that is accessible to you so you, you end up with a fractional ownership of a painting that as you've seen surely if you follow the art market as closely as i do uh, in times of tremendous inflation, in times where the economy is going off the rails, sometimes the art market is one that responds surprisingly consistently or maybe unexpectedly well. So Masterworks, th- th- this is this incredible story. In October t- 2020, Masterworks sold Mona Lisa, not that Mona Lisa, but one by Banksy, for one and a half million dollars, but had sold it to Masterworks investors the prior October for one million thirty-nine thousand dollars, netting investors a thirty-two percent net annualized return on their investment. This is a really intriguing thing, and uh, and as somebody that you know that wants to build an art portfolio, but also wants to diversify my financial portfolio. Right now, almost all of my savings is in nuts and seeds. Like a lot of people my age, I put a lot of money in nuts and seeds. You can't go wrong when the winter comes. But the idea of diversifying it into art, I think is is very intriguing to me. And you know, it's and very tangible. So if you're as interested in, as I am in building an intelligent portfolio, go to masterworks.art slash omnibus. That's masterworks.art slash omnibus. And, uh, and check out this like super curious and cool new way to invest and diversify your portfolio. That's masterworks.art slash omnibus when he coins the word listomania heine calls it a delirium unparalleled in the annals of fuhrer and what is the real cause of the phenomenon and this is interesting he thinks it's a, he thinks he sees that it's happening in the brain and not in the fingers of list oh the solution of the question belongs rather to the province of pathology than to that of aesthetics he, he feels like it's a medical condition he's seen the electric action of a demonic nature on a closely pressed multitude. I guess this is your, mm-hmm. this is your uh, cows. Causes fornication. The contagious power of the ecstasy and perhaps a magnetism in music itself, which is a spiritual malady which vibrates in most of us. All these phenomena never struck me so significantly or so painfully as in this concert of Liszt. Keep in mind, he's friendly with Liszt, yeah, his, yeah. his romantic contemporary. A physician whose speciality is the disorders of women— so he, he, it's a disorder. Mm-hmm. And with whom I conversed as to the magic which our list exercises on his public, smiled mysteriously and told many things of magnetism, galvanism, electricity, of contagion in an overheated hall, in which are a vast number of wax candles. Sure. 
and as many perfumes. Super hot. I guess without those, it's just like the, the cooking oil. But this would have Perspiring been... Perspiring mortals of histrionic epilepsies or stage fever, of the phenomena of tickling, of musical cantharides, and other subjects which I have, I believe, relation to the mysteries of the bonadia, which is like a Roman fertility rite. This was written when? Uh, Mid-1840s, I think. 1844. So, so he's still seeing it as a, as a, as a mental disorder, you know, kind of a hysteria of women. Well, no, I would think that that would be very modern considering how long before would it have been attributed to demons? Right. I mean, I guess part of being a romantic is you have a broader view of. Yeah. A a, a less purist view of religion. He never once refers to it being a spiritual malady. It's all this new realm of the. The the body and yeah, the, it's, it's the electri- it's the mesmeric electricity of the of the organ and the yeah and the brain yeah how how extraordinary the Pari- the Prussian papers call it a Saint Vitus dance you know oh, they, they, they right. relate it back to the we've done an omnibus on these we did medieval dancing fervors sure um, well also probably similar to a crash wor- crash worship show and in fact the audience is compared to Turkish dervishes so apparently they are. They're getting up. Oh, they're moving in, too. Apparently. I mean, you wouldn't... Pre-Pentecostal. I guess. Um, was there any, was there any uh, like, uh, bona fide religion that had an element of of uh, euphoric dancing? Not in 1840s Europe, right? I mean, it would have been seen as a... If they knew about it, they would. it would have been seen as maybe a suspect province of Eastern religion. Right, or, or American you know, com- kookiness. Comparing it to the Turkish dervises is, is yeah. Sufi... You know, Islamic mysticism. Yeah, sure. Um, so no, I don't think there would have been much of a. You know, he what, casting around for religious parallels. All Heine can think of is is Roman fertility rites. Um, he has to go back basically to almost before Christ. Well, and it, it's interesting that the um, and he blames wax candles. The you know Hungary would have been right pressed against the Ottoman Empire. Like Austro-Hungary and the Ottomans would have been, you know, that they're vying for that whole territory. So interesting that there wasn't more kind of... Uh, We're not allowed to say it's adjacent, but they are Ottoman adjacent. The Another thing to think about is that apparently um, List did have a promoter whose name I can't remember, you know, a very smart, a guy named Bellini, who was a very smart, um, you know, get the word out, tour Mm-hmm. What do you call the guy? A promoter, right? Yeah, every band needs one. Uh, but for the most part, he's doing Beatlemania in an age without any of McLuhan's hot media. You know, like the best people could do is hear in the papers yeah. or from a society friend that there's an amazing new performer. He's you know, a publicist. You, you can't, but you, but he's he's getting all this. You know, the thing about Beatlemania is you you felt like the world was experiencing at once. Of course, you had to scream. You were hearing people scream. At the Ed Sullivan show, you'd seen the people screaming at JFK. Right. Like here you have none of that. All you can do is read in the paper that he exerts a fantastic effect upon the audience. And yet people are still just going there and going bananas. And it's happening. And I wonder I wonder whether just one person sparks it off or whether it really I mean, I don't know what sit, imagining sitting on a hard bench and watching someone play the piano no matter how many times they flipped their hair. The fact that it's classical piano. You know, it's just, it's not the most, it doesn't seem like the most, I mean, maybe, maybe that's my cultural limitation that I can't see 19th century 
romantic music as anything but a little bit fusty. Is there any talk about how tight his pants are? <laughs> you know, I think that that sometimes plays a, cig- a role. Sometimes a half-smoked cigar is just a cigar, <laughs> the, um, one. So one theory I had thinking about this is, I guess it's kind of adjacent, as we often say, to that Cirque du Soleil thing of not being able to believe what you're seeing. Like, if he's literally doing something no one has seen before. I feel like often when I've had that experience of just not being able to, just having that kind of transcendent, I can't believe this performer experience, it was because I was seeing something new, you know? Like, um, I just read the Mike Nichols book that came out last year, and it's, you know, if you're interested in movies or theater at all, it's amazing. And it just talks about him as a kid going to, he saw, I guess Ilya Kazan directed Death of a Salesman and Streetcar Named Desire like six months apart. Isn't that amazing? And young Mike went to both. And, you know, between Kazan's work and Brando's work, he just felt like he was seeing a miracle. You know, something new was being created, like acting had just been reinvented. The theater had just been reinvented. You actually were in those apartments. And it just changed his life, and he wanted to be a director. And I remember seeing stuff like that live or even on TV, you know, watching a comedian do something where you can't believe the way he's working the crowd. Yeah. Uh Seeing Andy Kindler on Letterman kind of dissect comedy in front of your eyes, or even Letterman himself, the way he would just yeah. get laughed by doing anti-comedy. Yeah, when I was in my early teenage years, staying up, you know, against the against house rules right. to watch Letterman, and just feeling like their life would never be the same. And there, it was kind of a secret because you're, you know, you're doing it alone. Yeah, but I can only imagine watching somebody with a group of similarly awestruck contemporaries in a hall watching somebody do it live and just thinking this is the reinvention you know it's like seeing brando do stanley kowalski for the first time you know you watch somebody not just primp and preen and and grin but also perform this amazing music some of which he's written so you're like also he's a genius um beyond just being a virtuoso there's something to thinking you're seeing it for the first time yeah and just being like swept into the future. The magnetism of the stage, you know, I was not, I was not a super fan of cat power. Um, I never saw her live, but, and you know, and I, and I dated a girl that was really into cat power and I was like, even more felt like, ugh. oh, I, I like her songs. But then I saw her and, uh, you know, I was in the crowd at first, you know, arms crossed. She was late. And the band was on stage already kind of waiting for her. And I felt like that was disrespectful. But then she took the stage and I got swept up by her. And at one point she looked at me. And I know what it's like to be on stage and look at somebody. You're not looking at them. You can't see them. They're just a little light blob. Yeah. But she looked at me and I you know, I reacted and she appeared to notice my reaction and then zoom in on me. And I was like, there was no one else in the world. There was only Sean Marshall. And I was, and I'd seen her once before early in her career. And it was during that phase where she would go hide behind the drum kit, sit on the floor and sing at the wall. (laughs) And I was that, and I was then just like, ah, come on. But this, this one, this one performance, I was just like, well, I, I belong to you forever. 
Um, so uh, there have been a few of those like lightning bolts and it wasn't that, I mean, the music was good. It was way better. Oh my God. Ken, I saw Adele. Oh, when? Uh, on her 21 tour. She came through here and you saw her ad. She, she played at the, at Key Arena. Oh, wow. And I had no idea who Adele was. And I got a, I got a text message from a friend who was like the promoter of the show. And he was like, Hey, I, you know, of all the people I know, you're the, you're the only one I know that would go to see an Adele concert, not knowing who she was. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. He was like, okay, well you got a, you know, your ticket at will call. I didn't, I had never heard of her and, but she was playing the key arena. So she must be a big deal. Right. And I went and kind of sat down, you know, it was a good ticket promoters ticket sat in the venue and the people all around me were, um, super welcoming, you know, and they were, uh, the audience was appeared to me to be all women and gay men. And I was like, Oh, wow. Thank you for being so welcoming. And they were like, you know, you're here. You're one of us. You must love Adele. And I was like, actually, I don't know Adele. And then everybody around was like, Oh my God, this is great. You know, your first time. And I was like, come on. I've seen a lot of Join shows. You kidding me? I've seen, I've seen some shows. And then she takes the stage and I, I became an in, uh, instant fan. And then the the whole night, it was like, uh, I, I would have followed her anywhere. I still would. I mean, I still believe in Adele. If she calls. As a church. And she ra- is raising up an army. She is, she is fully a church. And I was there. I saw it. You are... Um... It's interesting that as you're as, you know, a straight male describing these experiences with two different women performers. Yeah. And I I assume the crush is an element of oh. the of the connection. You oh know? yeah. Like the Cause then you're moved, deeply moved, you know, uh, because you feel that electricity. Those young women that felt that like felt like they were in love with the Beatles, they really they felt like they were experiencing the love for the first time. Yeah. There's something about music where you feel known, seen and known, even though the the person isn't exactly standing there touching you and speaking directly to you, you, the connection, because music is an emotional language. And so you feel like, Oh, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't understand myself until now. And that makes sense in the romantic period when, you know, they are adapting all these these leader, these, these lyric poems and love poems. And that element is really grounded in the same way that, you know, the Beatles are singing all my loving and she loves you and love me do. And, you know, they're singing about the same first flush of attraction that the list is hammering away about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I don't, I mean, that's the thing about music, right? There's no other thing like it. No, no writing, is equivalent to it because it speaks in, in invisible words. That's what Stendhal said. It's, it's the only art form that's only itself. It's not trying to resemble reality in any way. It's only itself. And that concludes Listomania. Entry 726.MT0908. Certificate number 39341 in the omnibus. Futurelings in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era and you feel about Ken and myself <laughs> like uh, 1840s uh, classical music well, fans felt about Liszt. I mean, podcasting is, it creates the kind of parasocial relationship that 
people felt about the Beatles. Like they're like, oh, I've seen them. I've seen the lads clowning around. I feel like I know them. What good chemistry they have. They, we, ca- they kind of been like who before them had that? Maybe the Marx Brothers. We definitely do have uh, the experience a lot of people, and I and I and I believe it to to a certain extent. If someone listens to the show and feels that common cause with us, I I assume that that common cause is real, right? You're not going to listen to somebody that you don't feel it's true has something to offer you. Like if, so, if you think you would get along with a celebrity, you are correct. Yeah, probably. And you should probably go into their house <laughs> at night when they're out of town and go through their stuff. You should find Ken. <laughs> he really haunts the same bookstore and hamburger restaurant <laughs> and tell him how much he means to you. Uh, but if you want to not stalk us and creep us out in person, but want to do it online, you can find us on all social media, bleh, on all social media at Omnibus Project and at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, you can email us, which is a delightful way to communicate with us without. Do you find email delightful? Cornering us, some email <laughs> at the Omnibus Project at Gmail dot com, uh, and you can find other futurelings wherever fans congregate. Uh, you can support the show, which is the equivalent of screaming our names in a crowded hall, you can do it by sending us a small contribution every month at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Just convert your screams and swoons into five or $10 a month to support the show. And you can send us mail. This is the, this is the final personal connection. Do not send us your underpants. But do send us. You're going to need them. Other things. You're going to want to wear them under your pants or skirt. At PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. Now I see you opening a box over there, Ken, from some fans. What did you find? Catherine says this is funny. She did she mean it to be funny? I think so. Okay. Well, I mean, she she knows. She says she loves to fall asleep listening to the show. Yes, that's and good. She, and she's self aware about how that sounds. Um, no, but we understand. She used to read at night, but the light disturbed her husband, so now she nods off to omnibus. And when she runs out, and this is very sad, she has to listen to "Too Beautiful to Live." Oh wow! So we need to do more shows. How how is "Too Beautiful to Live" the uh, the understudy for omnibus? Well, how could you run out of it? Isn't there like <laughs> there's thirty hours of it yeah, a week? Seven hundred episodes. She sent us a repeat of the gift she sent us last year, which is I don't know if you remember this. Oh, a, the a dodecahedral calendar. I do remember. And I just the funny thing is I just threw away the 2021 one, which has been sitting on my desk. Well, and she only sent us one uh, last year. Is that be- true? Yeah, because I think she. Oh, no, wait. Here's one right here. There we go. Your story does not check out. Well, you can... That one's out of date, John. It is 2021. Oh. She, she says it's full of popcorn, so it might be fun to throw them into a campfire at the end of the year. What a good idea. Is that what it is? I'd, popcorn. I wonder if last year's is popcorn as well. That did not roll because it's a dodecahedron. I feel like the the New Year's is quite a bit bigger than last year's. Look at that. Uh, hopefully 2022 will be bigger than... 2021 and not just in case and hospitalization counts let's see i'm gonna put it i'm gonna put it on january although because it's a dodecahedron you can't really put it so that you can read it without it being sideways but i guess i can learn to adjust well i mean you can make the top the top could be the current month oh the top of course or or actually you can you you could do this you just have to put it there 
Does oh, that, oh, does that yeah. not work for every see, month? Well, does that? No, it's going to be sideways because of the way it's right. It's printed. It's going to be a little off center. Some of the months you can put upright on that face, and some you can. I'm going to put it on the top. That was the that was the the answer all along. Thank you, Catherine. That's that's lovely. You know, speaking of popcorn, I heard somebody say, and because we've talked about death rituals on the show, I've heard somebody say their preferred method of death would be to um, have the the mortician fill them up with popcorn and then get cremated. Well, that would only be funny for the mortician and only for like if you have a camera. Seconds. If you have a camera in the oven, it's oh. it's horrifying and beautiful. <laughs> I, I guess you become the Jiffy Pop in that scenario. You swell up and explode. We got something sent from Grody. Skagway, Alaska. Oh, I've been there. It's I don't know. I, it looks like it's it looks like Mickey is the one who sent the gift. But on behalf of uh, Robert, our listener, it is Alaska Wild Salmonberry Taffy. Oh, which which connects the thread on the show of you being from Alaska and me being Loving anti taffy. No, me being anti Salmonberry. <laughs> Oh, that's right. You don't like salmonberry, eh. but you do like old person candy because you're an old person. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I love a, a bowl of hard candy. Those Brock's ones that have the multicolored cross sections that, I like those. that stick together. You're telling me that you wouldn't eat that taffy? No, I'm going to have one right now. Oh, okay. Uh, and you have to do the rest. No, I have to do the rest of the outro. Yeah. With taffy in my mouth. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe may never come. There we go. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But, your problems are loud. Sticky. Yeah, you're gonna, all those people that have fallen asleep to the show are gonna wake up to your mouth sounds. For once, people are gonna hate my mouth sounds more than yours. We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.